Well, we are starting a new series here. Uh, it's the church, and we're starting talking about what, what's, the, what's the best book that you've ever read in your life? Greatest piece of literature. And now, I know a lot of you guys are going to be like, the Bible, okay? Like, you don't get brownie points for Sunday school answers here this morning, right? You still got to tithe, just like everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we, so for some of you, I, I don't know what yours is. My favorite book, uh, uh, personally, outside of the Bible, of course, is Anna Karenina. It's a book by Leo Tolstoy, 800 Pages of Glory, right? Characters, plot is rich. It's amazing. I love that book. Some of you guys, maybe you're a little less uh, spiritual and, and you like the Twilight series, okay? We've got some confessional booths set up in the back afterward. You can kind of repent of that. We'll, we'll work through it. It's all good. Um, but whatever it is that you, that you enjoy reading, uh, for you, you see the greatest piece of literature ever written, what, what is it? Well, there are, are many people who have agreed over the, the course of time that there was this one letter that stood out this one piece of writing that stands out among all the rest that have ever been written. Many of you know a man, Martin Luther, and over 500 years ago, um, God changed his life, understanding how to have a relationship with God. He understood it through the reading of this book. And this book was the spark that ignited the forest fire that we call the Protestant Reformation. Celebrated the 500-year anniversary of it last year, and it started from this man and others and their understanding of what this letter said. This is what Martin Luther said about this book. This, this epistle, which means a letter, in the, is in truth the most important document in the New Testament, the gospel in its purest expression. Not only is it well worth the Christian's while to know it word for word by heart, but also to meditate on it day by day. He says, don't just read this letter, memorize it. And then he goes to say, it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read too often or studied too much. The more you probe into it, the more precious it becomes and the better its flavor. He says, this book is delicious. And better yet, it's gluten-free, right? Makes it better than daily bread, man. 2018, come on. Now, so this book, and, and I haven't told you what the book is yet, all right? The next one, we see this letter. It changed. If you remember the Great Awakening that started in Britain and then waved across the Atlantic Ocean to America. People like George Whitfield, the, the, the Wesley brothers, penning the greatest hymns that we've ever sung, preaching sermons, seeing entire continents change their hearts to God. Through the understanding of this letter, many men have talked about this letter. John Knox said it was unquestionably the most important theological work that's ever been written. A man by the name of Benjamin Merkel, he said no other letter in the history of the world has received as much attention or has been given as much consideration as Paul's letter to the church at, I didn't want to spoil it yet, right? You just feel the tension. I can feel it out there. John Stott said it's the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And R.C. Sproul, he said, I really do believe that if there is any one individual book out of the 66 of the Bible, which God used to change lives more than any other, it is the book of blank. We, we had, we, the series we just came out of was, was talking about the vision of our church. What is God's vision for us as a people? And when we put forth this, this statement that we believe comes out of the biblical truth, that we are to be a gospel-centered community reproducing disciples of Jesus. And so if we are a group of people that's to be centered around this thing we call the gospel, then we really need to know what this gospel is and what it means and what it means to my life today. And I can't think of a better place to start to know what the gospel is 
than looking at this book, this letter that was written that has the fullest explanation, the most systematic layout of what the gospel means and what it looks like to live that out as a believer today than the book we are going to launch into a study on this morning. And if you've been reading in your bulletin, like I know you all do, it already says we're looking into the book of Romans. The book of Romans, where the series is called The Power of the Gospel. And what we're going to discover in this exploration of this book is the power of God through this gospel to change my life, to change your life, and to change the world. So we're going to start by reading the first seven verses this morning. This is an introduction. And in a way of respect and reverence, would you stand with me as we read this, these seven verses? We're going to read this together as we declare these opening words of what many have called the greatest letter ever written. Would you read this with me? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's get our shovels out. because We're going to start to do some digging into the book of Romans. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. So we're going to look a little bit about this, an introduction into this book today, these first seven verses that we just read, a couple of who, what, where, how, when, why. Paul is the writer of this letter, and not a lot of dispute. He says it right out of the gates. He names himself. Even in higher criticism, most people believe that this was the author, the Apostle Paul. What is it? It's a letter. And that seems obvious, but it's important for us to understand that this is a letter. What, impl- what's that, what implied there is that it's one person who wrote it to some other people. And the letter wasn't written primarily to you or me. We're reading someone else's mail. We're peeping over Paul's shoulder as he pens this to someone else. And so it's important to understand the context of why did he write it to the people he wrote it before we apply it to ourselves or else we can mess up some of the interpretation and application. So it's a letter, a letter. And it was written about 54 to 59 AD. This is at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. So it's coming to the end of his ministry before he's going to be imprisoned, sent to Rome, and eventually killed because of his belief in this gospel. And he sends it to these churches in Rome. There's this group of believers. Now, this was not 2018, so he couldn't just tweet out some information to everybody. He had to send these letters that were dictated, and most likely this, this girl named Phoebe, she takes it to Rome, and they start circulating it around what were most likely house churches in Rome. So it goes from church to church. as They read it to each other, are encouraged by it, and they pass it off to the next church. So why did Paul, in 54-ish AD, write this letter and send it to these believers in Rome? What was the occasion? Two main reasons I want us to look at today as evidenced in the letter itself. The first one is it's an introduction. It's an introduction. Paul, if if you remember, he had never visited the church at Rome. It says it in verse 10 of chapter 1. He's never been there before. There's a church there, so the gospel's been taken there, but he's never been there before, and he plans to come 
See, Romans was an ex- extremely, Rome was an extremely strategic place. It was the capital of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire at the time, and in fact, up to the history of time in early AD. And so Paul sees this as a launching point to take the gospel. He says in Romans 15, I want to take it to Spain. His heart was to take the gospel where it had never been before, to the ends of the known world at that time. And he goes, man, if we can get, if I can come to Rome, that's going to be a very strategic place to launch it to these other regions unknown. So he wants to send before himself, because he'd never been there, an introduction about who he is and what this gospel is that he preaches, what he's all about. And I love that he did that because we get this full, rich explanation of, of the gospel. So you think about this, like, man, if, if you were to come to somebody, how would you introduce yourself to them? Like, you've never met this person or this group of people. What are the things about you that you would put forth to, to begin with? And I always seem like when I'm giving my sermon illustrations and I talk about myself, I talk about my bad hips and sour patch kids. I don't know why I always start there. I need some, I need some counseling, right? I don't know what that is about. But when we introduce ourselves, and what, what, how do we do that? Well, Paul did it by writing the book of Romans, right? He wins. That's better than my hips and sour patch story. So Paul, he, he puts forth who he is so that they would know him. So that's the first reason, introduction into who he is and what he's set apart for. The second reason is for unification. Unification, and let me unpack that. Um, my brother-in-law, Ryan, he's the ginger in the picture. Ryan comes from a very quiet family. They keep to themselves, you know, it's very peaceful, like just loving, it's just no, you know, confrontation. And then he married my sister and got welcomed into the Frankino family, right? <laughs> These loud Italians, it's just chaos, right? And you know, if you've married into another family, what happens when your family and their values collide into the other family and their values? Job security for counselors around the world, Right? And so when you're bringing this, there's this diversity, and you're trying to make unity out of that diversity, it can be a challenge. We've got our team here, a discipleship team that, called Acts 29, and they've come down and spent the week with our church, been serving with us, uh, worshiping with us. It's been a privilege to have them, but they're coming from all over the place. We've got people from Ecuador, from Thailand, from Sweden, Alaska. We've got four Swedes, and the one guy from Alaska's name is Sven. Figure that out, right? <laughs> and you can imagine as a team what it's like. I'm coming from a different culture, a different church background, different language, and to try to be united as a team can be very, very difficult. What Paul is writing to these two groups of people who are very different from one another, but they're called to live in this unity, and he wants to address this. So this is what happens. So Rome, which is the capital of the empire, okay, in 49 AD, they had these things called emperors, they're kings, and emperor Claudius, he drove out all of the Jews who lived in Rome at that time. He said, you got to get out of here. So he drives, this is after the church has been formed. So all the Jewish Christians and as well had to be kicked out of Rome. And then five years later, he changes his mind and says, you can come on back now. But the problem is, over those five years, the church has been now comprised mostly of Gentile Christians. Gentile means non-Jew. So when the Jewish Christians come back into the church, there's this huge conflict. There's this rift between the the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. A lot of these Jewish believers are still bringing in kind of their Old Testament theology and saying, wait a second, you guys need to be circumcised if you want to be a follower of Jesus and know God. 
They're saying, what about the Sabbath? You still got to respect the, the Sabbath day and you got to eat kosher. And these Gentiles are like, what? I'm eating my pork, right? Get behind me, Satan. You don't tell me what to do. And there's this, this conflict that arise, arises between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And Paul, he, he comes to address this. And he's calling for unity. And when he lays out in this letter God's brilliant work over the course of history to bring the Jews and the Gentiles under the name of Jesus as one in the way that only our God could do. And I thought about this, and I thought, man, do we not have division in our country today? Like, we can relate to this, right? And racial tension is, is high, and you got left-wing versus right-wing. We, we are a nation that's been called a melting pot or a tossed salad, if you will, and we got people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds and belief systems, and in the church, that's just a microcosm of our nation. So we're trying to come together to be one, and what Paul is going to show here in this letter is, man, no matter what your background is, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your political leaning is, no matter how you were brought up, He's going he's gonna to level the playing field. And he's going to show us how we are all equally lost in our sin. And the only way we are going to find right relationship with our God and peace-filled relationship in a world that is broken and chaotic is through this thing he calls the gospel. And he spends the next 16 chapters unpacking what it is and how it brings unifying peace into our universes. Only one way, through Jesus. So, this is Paul, and he wants to introduce himself. So, so first of all, how does he do this? Let's look at verse 1, and, and, and you think about how would you introduce yourself to this group of people in the most powerful city on earth. Now, there's a couple things Paul could have done. He could have led with, I am Saul of Tarsus. And that would have played well to the Romans that he's talking to, the Gentile audience. Because Tarsus is one of the three main university centers in the Roman Empire. It would be like saying, man, I went to Harvard. I'm from Yale, okay, I've got, I've got some, some academia in my, my repertoire. And then he, he could have said, I, I'm a Roman citizen. Because again, in, in the Roman Empire, if you were an actual citizen of Rome, you had special privileges and rights and standings that non-citizens didn't. He could have gained an audience by saying, I'm a Roman citizen. He could have also, he could have also uh, appealed himself to his Jewish audience by saying, I was trained by Gamaliel. And when he grew up, this was like a modern-day Billy Graham. And he sat under this guy personally and was trained by him. And the Jews would have really respected this. He could have said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Does this sound, remember Philippians 3, when he talked about the ways I could boast? He could have said, I was a zealous Pharisee. And I know all the things you guys are trying to bring as you come back into the Gentile church. Man, I'm all about that. He could have appealed to both audiences. Our boy had some real cred and he could have pointed up to his walls all of his PhDs. He could have shown his birth certificate, I'm a Jew, his selfies with Gamaliel. Like he could have really reached out and impressed these people. But how does he introduce himself? Well, this, is, this is incredible. He goes, Paul. That's how he starts the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is the most important thing about me. I'm a servant of King Jesus. And when he uses this word, it's, it's this Greek word. It means do, it's doulos. And the word doulos, it means a slave or a bond servant. So we don't want to soften this blow. He goes, no, no, I'm a slave of Jesus. 
And, and Kenneth West, he, he kind of breaks this down, what this means. He says that this, this word doulos, it's the most abject, servile term used by the Greeks to denote a slave. You couldn't get any lower than a doulos. He says it's a word designated one who was born a slave, one who was bound to his master in cords so strong that only death could break them, on one who served his master to the disregard of his own interests, one whose will was swallowed up in the will of his master. He says the only thing that mattered about this guy was what his master wanted. Whatever his master said to do is what he did. That was his identity. And here's Paul writing to these people to establish his authority. And he says, the most important thing about me is that I'm a doulos of Jesus. He's my master. I'm his slave. He says, there's this man who 25 years ago was murdered brutally, and then he raised to life again. And that's my master. You think about this. This this is a man who began his career as Jesus' public enemy number one. He was there at the scene, helped participate in the first Christian martyrdom when Stephen was killed. And he goes around the empire doing his best to squash this Jesus movement. And now he's penning the greatest letter that's ever been written about Jesus and his good news. I mean, that's the power of God. And so he writes to them, and and he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, even the first word there, Paul, it means humble or little. That's what it meant in Latin. Right out of the gates, he goes, this is not about me. I'm just a slave of Jesus. So his attitude here, what we see out of the gates, his attitude is one of humility and submission. He goes, man, this isn't about me. This is not about ear-tickling you and getting you to think how great I am. The only thing great about me is the Jesus that I serve. And you realize that any of us here today who have placed our faith in Jesus, that we too have become a doulos of of Christ. Paul also wrote another letter to the church at Corinth, and he said this, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You are not an autonomous creature. If you're a believer in Christ, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It says Jesus' blood, it didn't just save you, it purchased you, and you belong to him as a slave. Do I find my identity primarily as a doulos for Jesus. When I wake up in the morning, and I confess this more often than not, this is not my mentality, that I'm waking up and I'm going, man, master, what would you have me do today? Where would you have me go today? What would you have me say today? What would you have me think today? This is Paul's mentality. This is what he leads with. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. The next thing he says is I'm called to be an apostle. Now the word apostle here, it means a sent one, or an ambassador, or, or a missionary. And, and in the New Testament, we see these apostles at the beginning of Acts. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said, Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give you my spirit. We call it portable Jesus. He says, I'm going to send portable Jesus into each and every one of you, and you're going to go out to the world, the whole world, as my sent ones to tell them about me. And so these apostles, these these sent ones, they went under the authority of Jesus. That's what an ambassador is, right? If I'm an ambassador of America to France, I'm representing America. And America is my authority. When I speak, I speak with the authority of my leader from my country. He says, I'm sending you with my authority to go into the world and tell people about Jesus. Now, there's some different beliefs on this, but many people believe, and the more conservative approach is that Apostle capital A... These first, remember the original 12 disciples of Jesus, Matthias got switched out with Judas. These original apostles 
to be capital A apostles sent ones from Jesus, his authority, had to have a personal encounter with Jesus. Now, Paul didn't see Jesus before he ascended, personally, a personal encounter. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 9 when he's going to Damascus? And he gets knocked onto his rear end, and he has a firsthand encounter with Jesus so that he might be an apostle for him. In fact, he called himself this in Romans 11. Later on, we're going to see in this very book, he says, God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm the main authority that's been sent to tell the Gentile people about Jesus, just like Peter was the main apostle that had been sent to the Jewish people. So Paul's authority, we're going to see here, is is the one who sent him. Just like the ambassador to another country has the authority of, of the country that sent him, He says, the reason I have authority, the reason you should listen to or believe anything that comes out of my mouth is because of the one who sent me. I'm an ambassador of Jesus, his apostle. But we too, whether it's a capital A or a little a, we are sent. We too are sent out into this world. Paul says this in his second letter to the church at Corinth. He gave us, not just Paul, he gave us as believers this wonderful message of reconciliation. And here's, he unpacks that. So we are Christ's ambassadors sent by Jesus into this world to do what? God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So you and I are sent into this world to tell the world there's a way to be reconciled, to come back into right relationship with our God. And I got to think, man, am I willing? If, If he is my authority, he is my master, I'm his doulos, Am I willing to go wherever he sends me? What if Jesus told you tomorrow, I want you to pack up your things, gather up your kids, and you're going to Namibia. I want you to move to Tajikistan, to Papua New Guinea, and tell people about Jesus. Would I be willing to go? Would you be willing to go? Or we'll bring it closer to home. What if he tells me, man, tomorrow, I want you to go across the street and talk to your neighbor. I want you to, to, to open your mouth and, and talk to your coworker, build a relationship with him. Are, are, Am I willing to go where he says to go and to say what he says to say? Thirdly, servant, he's an apostle. And the third one is, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I've got one aim, one goal in my life, and that's to proclaim this good news that I'm about to unpack for the next 16 chapters. You see, he had one aim in his life. He had his eyes on the prize, on the finish line the entire way. He wrote to the Ephesian elders when he came, or when he came to them, excuse me, and he, and he said this farewell speech. And this is what he says in his speech. And I love this, one of my favorite verses. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. And what was this work? What was this aim? What was his goal? The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace. God. And can I say that that's my primary reason for getting up out of bed in the morning? To proclaim the good news of the grace of our God through Jesus. And I find myself living for a lot of other purposes, a lot of other aims, and this thing becomes peripheral at best. Paul never lost sight of why he was put on this earth by his master. So what is it? What is this? If we're to proclaim the gospel, if that's the reason we live, well, what is the gospel? Well, you're asking good questions because that's what he says next. We, we look at, if you remember the series that we did uh, last year, we walked through the story of the Bible. 
We called it his story. And we just looked at how the whole Bible fits together to tell this one story about Jesus, that all of it points to Jesus. And we're going to see Paul here with a 60,000 foot view of this gospel story as seen through the scriptures, right? He's going to run through this in verses two through five. And this is what he tells us about this gospel story that we see in the scripture. Number one, that it was promised. That it was promised. This is first what he says in verse 2. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, the New Testament hasn't been finished yet. So he's referring to the Old Testament. The prophets, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, they're all pointing forward to this gospel. All of their promises said, look forward. There's one coming. The good news is coming. It was promised. And then number two, this good news is a person. Verse 3. The good news is about his son. Now, do you catch that? It doesn't say the good news is not primarily facts. It's not primarily information. The good news is primarily a person. It's Jesus. And this good news, everything they were pointing to was Jesus. He comes and it says in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Now, why was that important? Because all the Old Testament prophets said this is going to be one of the fulfillments of the promise was this man who's coming, this Messiah, will be in the line of David and he will reign forever and ever. So Jesus comes and he's born as a descendant of David. It was very important for him to be a fulfillment of this prophecy. And then he says, he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says this man comes and he's the right guy. He fulfills all the prophecies and he dies on a cross. And then three days later, he raises again. And all of our hopes, everybody was looking forward to this coming Messiah. And he says he came and then he rose again. And what we celebrated yesterday is this risen Jesus. And it's this risen Jesus that gives us any hope that we have in this world for the kind of spirit-filled unity and peace that can be offered. And it's only found in the person of Jesus. He says this person is the gospel. And the final thing he says is that this Jesus will be proclaimed. So he was, was promised, he is a person, and he will be proclaimed through Christ, verse 5. This is the New Living Translation. God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. Why? So that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. He says this gospel, this Jesus, this is what we were set on earth to proclaim. And we're going to tell everybody about him that they might believe him and obey him. Under what end? The glory of the name of our God. So that everybody will know how glorious our God is. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And he's going to spend the next 16 chapters unpacking this very gospel. Now, the last thing he's going to say here is verse, verse 7. He's going to give him a greeting. Grace and peace. He says to the, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So remember, this is our audience. He's writing to this, these, these believers in Rome, these house churches that he's going to pass the letter around to. And this is the thing he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Now, this is a very common greeting for the church early on. In fact, many believe that Paul was the one that penned this, this greeting. But what we got to see here is that Paul is actually being super clever and strategic in using this very phrase to this very audience. Okay, so there was this common greeting in Greek. And, and the word here, it meant greetings. And the word's chirain. Chirain. You got to get some phlegm going, right? You say it with me. Chirain. One more time. Chirain. There you go. You can just get that off your back of your neck. It's all good. 
Chirain. Chirain was just a general greeting that they used at that time in the Greek language. But Paul does this spiritual judo chop on the word, and he turns it into this, uh, this gospel-filled expression known as charis. Charis. Okay, try that with me. Charis. We got chirain, charis. How awesome is that, right? <laughs> so what he does is he takes this common greeting, and he says, I'm going to turn it into this word that's going to point us to Jesus. So the Greeks would totally have understood when he used this word, what he was doing with it. And then, what was the most common greeting that the Jewish people used? In fact, up to this day, last Wednesday, Jews for Jesus came and showed us a Seder meal on Wednesday night. And how did Rob greet everybody? Shalom. Shalom, which was Hebrew for peace. Peace. So the, the word here he uses, the two most common greetings, for the, one for the Greeks and one for the Jews. So do you see what he's doing here? Remember, he's calling them, these Jews that come back into this Gentile church in Rome, and he's calling them into unity. And he uses this, this one greeting that's very familiar with the Greeks and one that is very familiar with the Jewish people. And he says, grace and peace to you. And I love what he's doing here. It's like if I showed up to like a group of, of cowboys and Italians, okay? I don't know, he's some kind of mafia hoedown. I don't know what would be going on there. And I wanted to greet both groups, and I'd say, howdy, y'all. How you doing? Right? And then it just magically would bring them all together. And <laughs> so, what, so you see, what the, the point is, he's addressing both in a way that they would understand and what he's calling them to. What he's calling them to. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, you need to extend grace and peace to one another. Because Galatians 3 says, in Jesus, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, no female. You are all now one in Christ. That's what matters most about your identity. And it's only going to be found in this grace and peace. And notice here, and this is so important, he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not say, you've got to come up with this grace and peace. You guys sit down there and figure it out. Work harder and come up with how to be gracious and peaceful with one another. No, 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 no. He says this grace and peace is a gift that comes from God, originates from God, and is given to you. In fact, the word grace here, it means unearned gift. Like we're all going to go to work tomorrow, and, and the wages that we make over the next week, when we get that paycheck, you earned that because you worked. But here he says grace is a gift. It was given to you. You did nothing to deserve it. This is from our God. And the good news that he's going to unpack in the book of Romans is that he freely gave us the person of Jesus, an unearned gift. And the result of that gift, it's very important that he goes grace and then peace. He says grace and unearned gift, and the result of this is peace. And my favorite definition of peace is wholeness in Jesus for a life that's in pieces. Wholeness in Jesus for a life that's in pieces. Do we not live in a broken world? And all we know as sinners is fractured relationships, fractured relationships with, with each other, fractured relationships with God. He says it's only through this unearned gift of Jesus that you're ever going to experience order in your chaotic lives. That you're going to experience wholeness in what is broken and fractured. And it's offered freely through the person of Jesus. So this is what we're going to walk through this next year. The greatest letter ever written. And I want to remind us again, this vision, we're a gospel-centered community, but the second part of it is that we're reproducing disciples of Jesus. That we are called, our mandate from our master, who, of whom we are losses, 
is to go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So listen, we're not just here to come on Sunday mornings and hear what Justin thinks about the book of Romans. If if that's all we do, man, man, there's going to be a limit to any kind of effect that God can have in our lives. We are not primarily called to be baby birds that come to get fed, that I'm going to chew up the, the, the book of Romans and then just kind of spit it out into all your mouths. First of all, that's disgusting, right? And second of all, that's not what we were called to do. We need to know how to feed ourselves. We need to know how to be, become fishers of men and not just feed ourselves, but then be able to teach it to others. So we want to talk about this. We said our, our method for reproducing disciples of, of Jesus is to engage this lost community and then to equip the found, and then empower them to go out and engage more lost, to equip the found, and it continues on and on and on. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we unpack this, this reading? Well, one of the tools that we want to offer as we walk through this series, if you go to our website, peninsulagrace.org, we have this sermon tabs, and, and there's, you can always go and download the audio um, and the PowerPoints that come along, along with it and the notes. Um, but what we're going to do is this new tab underneath there, and we've got this up and running. This is the, our Romans reading plan. And what we've got is we've kind of, we've laid out, we're going to do this week by week, and we already have this up for this week, is there's a reading plan that will kind of complement. If you remember the Own It 365 we did with his story, well, we're kind of doing this, creating our own, and, and what it gives is some passages, you read next week's sermon passage every day, but then also along with it, some supplemental reading around scripture that'll help kind of connect and unfold uh, what Paul's saying in the book of Romans. Now, if you only do one thing this week, this is what I would challenge you to do. We put it down for Tuesday, but you could obviously do it whenever is to take, take an hour, which is about how long they say it would take, and read the entire book of Romans in one sitting. So one hour to read the book of Romans, and there is a power in seeing the whole book together in one reading in one sitting. And what it does is it creates a context. We see how all the verses fit together. And so as we start to move through verse by verse, you'll remember that, that big 30,000-foot view of how it all goes together. And actually, I'd encourage us to be doing that several times over the course of the series, to zoom back out as we're going through verse by verse. Now, you might say, well, I've done that before, Justin, and I've got to tell you, I did not understand a single thing I read, right? That, Roman, that, that Paul was crazy, right? I don't understand it, and I got this KJV Bible, and I'm trying to unpack thousand these, and bleh, what, am I, what in the world? Well, there's some other tools that can help us explain what it is that we're reading, and one of them, and I, I put this down for Monday, there's a link, there's a YouTube video, it's about 17 minutes long, it's by a group called The Bible Project, and I, and I can't recommend them enough, they actually do this with every book of the Bible, but what they do is there's this blank piece of parchment paper, and over the course of 17 minutes, he kind of explains, as he's drawing this out, this is the end product, but he's going to explain a lot of what we talked about today, the background of Romans, and then he's going to look at a flow of the book itself, and as you watch these videos, it really helps you understand how the whole book gets put together, it was written as a letter, so it flows, it has a, has a meaning, it has a climax, it has a purpose. So this really, I'd even encourage you to watch this video and then do your reading through the book of Romans. Then you might say, well, I I got an overview, but man, still as I walk through it, I just can't understand it. I want to let you know everything I said today, I I hopefully didn't make any of it up. And I certainly didn't just have it like memorized from 15 years ago when I was in Bible college. Monday morning, I got up and I, and I opened the Bible and I read through Romans and then I started doing some digging. And I, and I went through some commentaries and some background information and we can do the same thing, each of us. So, so a couple of, of tools, and I have this in your notes today, a couple of Bible commentaries that I would recommend, number one, because they're free 99 and that's my favorite price, is you can go to studylight.org or blueletterbible.org and as you type in, man, you search for Romans, they have commentaries, they have the, the, the Greek definitions that you can look up, and you can, no, I promise, commentaries are not that bad. They're really not, they're really not. They're really not. 
And you can unpack this for yourself. I mean, you can read the background of the book of Romans for yourself. There are probably 50 commentaries between these two websites that tell you about the background of Romans. And you can compare those together. This is how we can start to be able to feed ourselves, learn the Bible, and you're going to learn it in richer, deeper ways than just getting it secondhand from me. But to close us down, and there's actually a bookmark in your uh, bulletin as well that has that reading plan. But to close us down, Romans has been called by many, John Piper, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, many that I've read called the greatest letter ever written. And it's not because it was some literary work of genius, like Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, or the even much more cerebral Hop on Pop by Dr. Seuss, right? This is incredible. I love the tagline, the simple Seuss for toddler's use, right? So it's not because, man, he's just the literary genius, although it is, it is brilliant, The reason that this is the greatest letter that's ever been written is because it is God's word. It's not about how great Paul was. Paul was just being used by God. It's the the word of God. He inspired Paul, directed Paul to write this letter. It's a letter from God, and it's a letter about God. And the thing that's so beautiful about this letter is not that it tells us all about Paul, and not even that it explains like how salvation works. The beautiful thing about this letter is that it unveils the gospel of Jesus and the purpose of what Jesus did was to invite us back into a relationship with God. And I'm here to tell you, there is nothing better in the universe than to know our God, the Father, through Jesus. Nothing else, no amount of money, No amount of comfort and pleasure and success will give you what God offers in a relationship with him for our good and his glory. So let's go on a journey together down this Romans road to know that beautiful God through the name of Jesus. Father God, we come before you and and we're going to, we want to study this letter. We want to read it. We want to know it. But God, not just so that we can puff ourselves up with more head knowledge and cool little background facts, Greek words. But God, that you would open our eyes so that we might see you. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us through the word. You did not have to do that. You did not have to tell us about yourself. But you love us so much and and you are so worthy of all praise, of all worship, of all knowing that you put these words into the mouth of Paul to speak and to be written so that 2,000 years later we might know you through them. And Father, I pray as we read through this letter that we would know Jesus, that we would know our Father through him in a way that only the Holy Spirit can work through us. We can study, we can read, but what we ask is we just invite the Holy Spirit in to teach us, to guide us, to show us the sin in ourselves, to show us the wonders of Jesus and the good news of what he's accomplished for us in our lives, that we would know it and that we would share this gospel, just like Paul, doulos is for Jesus, to go into the world and to have no other purpose than to proclaim the good news to every single person. It's in your son's beautiful, risen name we pray. Amen.